Hey there! Are you tired of waiting for the next episode of It's Probably Not Aliens? Well, we've got some good news for you. On Nebula, our streaming service, you can get access to all our episodes a week early. That's right, you'll never have to wait again to hear Scott and I debunk the latest ancient astronaut theory or get a movie fact wrong. But that's not all. Nebula is home to dozens of content creators we know you like, so you can find all your favorites in one place. Plus, we post content on there that you won't find anywhere else. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and listen to the next episode right after this one. So uh, for cold open, I just have Isaac Arthur. Isaac Arthur. He's back. Better than ever. It's, it's good. What I like about you, Isaac, though, is that you were like, all right, so we're talking about wormholes today. What was the other thing we're talking about? And it was like, oh, teleportation. teleportation. And you were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, just know, like you just have this stuff in your head. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I got that. I got that covered. It's no problem. Yeah, yeah. Every time I think that, I think if I were to build a rule in my head and if Isaac's cool with it, it'll be that every time it's like, oh, we have to do an episode where I have to know physics. Well, I know who to go for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So welcome back to the show. We're, we're glad to be on. Yeah, we're very happy to have you here. This is going to be, it's going to be like a live uh corrections episode where where normally we (laughs) normally (laughs) tristan says some stuff and then a couple months later we'll issue some corrections and uh this time we've got we've got you right here to just be like actually i think the first time we had you on we mixed up uh general relativity and special relativity so that was very helpful i'm trying to avoid using the word actually to start sentences off anymore (laughs) actually (laughs) well you can just be like hmm well, Especially with that specific inflection, you know, actually. Well, <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like um, this has been, it's been a long time since uh, on this podcast. By the way, internet, this is a podcast this is called a podcast. It's Probably Not Aliens. That's right. Uh, called It's Probably Not Aliens, where we talk about pseudo-history, pseudo-archaeology, and uh, ancient astronaut theory, uh, usually responding to ancient aliens. My name's Tristan Johnson, and I know very little, but I did a lot of research. I This, this is how, this is mm-hmm. how we know how the topic is going to go places. I did several days, days of worse. research on this episode, and I know nothing about this topic. <laughs> My name is Scott Icewander. I'm the other host of this show. I know even less than Tristan does. Uh, if that's even, if if you can believe it, that's true. Mm-hmm. And we have a returning special guest, uh, Isaac Arthur, who I have to imagine has done more than a couple days of research into these, uh, into these, uh, into physics in general. Is that oh, true? Yeah. It's, 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 I think you need years to study on physics just to actually get to the point with quantum mechanics that you don't feel like it's just weird and, and, and nonsensical. Yeah. Eventually, at some <laughs> mm-hmm. point, so would have been intuitive. So. Oh, well, that's good. And then they let you out of the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just imagining that like the first day of like third year of your physics major and you go into the class and they're like, all right, guys, listen up. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get one. Remember, all, gonna that, remember all that math you knew before? <laughs> well, all right, we oh, wait, did one side I? of physics. Fine. Now we're going to do the other side. And by the way, we still don't know how they meet. So let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you, we were talking about Marvel movies before the show started. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you how accurate, if you've seen it, how accurate is Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania uh, when it comes to quantum uh, physics and such? And, uh, it, not very much. I actually ended up doing a quantum media episode as a joke, multiverse warfare on quantum media that would come out the same day. And it didn't do very well. So it's like much like the movie. I'm a big fan of Kang. He's like my second favorite Marvel you know, villain after Doctor Doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, maybe Apocalypse, but he's right up there at the top. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I do not feel like you really judge Marvel movies by how accurate their science is, because the answer was <laughs> probably no. a good idea. Don't even start. <laughs> <laughs> the first Marvel movie is literally, I invented a magic energy machine. Yeah. <laughs> 
it, it, occasionally you find like the you know, Star Wars, uh, Warhammer, things like that. They're, 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 the science isn't very realistic, but sometimes they will land on something very accurate. And Marvel's yeah. had a few here and there, but mostly, again, it's like going into a Michael Bay movie. You don't go there for the realism, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm actually curious. Especially <laughs> curious, Isaac. I wonder how annoying it is to people who do four-dimensional geometry work. How much Marvel has uh, messed up the word for a 3D shadow of a 4D hypercube? Tesseract. <laughs> oh yeah. So, but ironically, I was bringing that up with a script recently. It was the example people would have. They did that with um, oh, it was an old show, um, Threshold from the early 2000s had Brent Spinal mm. and Peter Dinklage in it. So oh, it was wow. a bit of a gem. Otherwise, awful. But <laughs> it, it could have been done better. But it was okay. It was Brandon Braga on that one too. I had some good points, but they did a test rack that would pop into the universe, and uh, it had the magical power of brainwashing people into like alien zombies. So mm. they're really not that good of an example of how that would work. There's nothing yeah. all that impressive about what a 40 object would look like in 3d besides explosive you know you, you yeah. put something that's got more dimensions into a space it it doesn't do well It'd be like trying to stuff a tire into a piece of paper it's going to blow up yeah uh, it doesn't really look all that weird <laughs> interesting interesting comparison we're learning so okay. much already yeah 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 okay so so let me tell you isaac why we brought you here today to um live correct me on my research so here is what's been going on we are wrapping up talking about episode one of season two of ancient aliens yes we are only that far through. Uh, mm -hmm. And this whole episode was trying to make the claim that various uh, places that have urban legends about them or just look weird might be the place where using ley line energy, uh, aliens were had what they, they literally called stargates, uh, yes. which were doing some sort of either wormhole or teleportation or something. Uh, let me try to get like the actual quote here that says, uh, another theory to how extraterrestrials might have traveled across the universe involves the scientific concept of teleportation. Oh, but is it really possible to have something disappear from one spot and appear somewhere else? And then Sarita at the Max Planck Institute, scientists have already dematerialized subatomic particles and made them reappear somewhere else. So science is just on the precipice of being able to do this. <laughs> To move it from one place to another. So I believe that it is, is a secret that the ancient stone builders knew. Since wormholes are theoretically located <laughs> so, throughout the universe, could these yep. same types of gateways exist in smaller areas on Earth? So, yes. Sure, why not? <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. It gets oh. better. Oh. According to ancient astronaut theorists. By the way, this is all verbatim. This is verbatim. According to ancient astronaut good. theorists, the gate of the gods is one end of a wormhole, a type of portal that connects either to another part of the universe or another dimension. A wormhole is a theoretical construct through general relativity. The concept is, really, that there's a possibility of space-time being connected, various parts of space-time being connected through a small channel. And if such a construct was made, then you'd have a shortcut between very distant parts of the universe. Okay. You might be obliterated into a bunch of subatomic particles, as far as I can tell, but <laughs> yes, you would be there. Uh, wormholes are an accepted element of theoretical physics, but they have the actually... Ex theoreticals doing a lot of work there, uh, yeah. but they have they actually existed in the world's most mysterious places. Uh, the idea that there are stargates, actual actual word they used, actual or stargates. that they could have existed in ancient times. You know, the big the big rotary phone that goes mm -hmm. to other planets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, One of my favorite sci-fi shows ever, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we do see many artifacts and representations of someone passing through a doorway. I have some other interpretations of what that could be. Or going through some type of energy source. An ancient man did not understand technology just as they were trying to understand. Is a wormhole possible? And then we got the we finish off with David Childress. That is some kind of doorway between our dimension and another citation needed. And what I maintain is that these aliens who are going through here are coming here in interdimensional type of craft. They're able to jump All through right. hyperspace. Again, uh, I think that's a word from science fiction, not from science. Come here to our planet in no time at all, but they have to enter through certain doorways and portals into our planet. So All right, does any part of that does any part of that jump out to you as as like a little or I mean like they nailed it right? No, but oh, but okay. they could have. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I would say it's a great example of of how pervasive chariots of fire was a piece of work, and, and I mean because it's inspired so much sci-fi and for that matter, additional conspiracy theories. Um, but mm -hmm. um, at the same time. They're, it's not exactly wrong because they're quoting certain things, but they're taking a lot of liberty with it, obviously. And, you know, you can't just go and say, well, this highly advanced technology that we don't possibly understand based on science we don't know isn't possible and couldn't 
doesn't exist because you know I say that no one believes it. You know, we live in an era where the right. impossible becomes impossible becomes possible fairly quickly. So I'm not going to say you could not ever possibly use quantum this way, but every time we've had a trick that people reference as like this will let us go faster in life, and we've investigated, the answer was a hard no, not a kind of maybe, but a hard no. Mm. The reason why we can't investigate the wormholes thing specifically is because those almost always require exotic matter. And the key thing about exotic matter is that we call it that because it only exists on paper. And this isn't the case of like one of those things where we think we're going to find it. The big one for wormholes is negative matter, right? And negative mm-hmm. matter. And you can use negative energy too, which is a little bit little bit solidal. But negative matter is the idea that it has something that has mass that is negative, which means, oh, that works on paper. So well, the math works out. That's great. You can have a negative dollar in real life, right? Mm-hmm. Can be a negative dollar though. It doesn't really exist. What's a negative right. piece of chocolate? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. That is a piece of broccoli if I remember correctly. In, um, in math, you can have a negative piece of broccoli and in, in, in practice, that's just yeah. an accounting thing. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I do love this mathematician thing where it's just like a mathematician will say like, well, if we have this thing that's literally impossible then uh then we could do this and everyone's like you see if we could just find the impossible thing then we could do this if we could find the impossible thing the math would mostly work out the alternative is use imaginary mass which gets even weirder because that's like the square root of negative one matter as opposed to just negative one matter but i mean this happens a lot and i'm not going to beat up on math about it it's very valuable as a tool for theory but at the same time, the whole idea of physics and science in the modern era is that we take experimental evidence, mm-hmm. and from that we derive hard, predictable results. And I, I like string theory; it's a nice theory. I, I like you know wormhole theory too, but all of these things are based on a complete lack of evidence. So the math works out, and there's not a piece of evidence for or against them. And so mm-hmm. that's that's not really a good yeah. place to be basing off your. But it's kind of hard to disprove, too. Someone says, well, can you, can you show me a wormhole can't work? It's like, well, I can't prove to you that negative matter doesn't exist. That's, mm-hmm. that's not, that doesn't work under Papa. <laughs> right. this, um, this actually does make me think about how, uh, this is a good introduction to it, but um, how like the whole speed of light, hard uh, speed limit thing, I was just, I, I, I've recently come into, and I'm pretty sure you've got to be familiar with this YouTuber. You guys are in such close spaces. Sabine Hassenfelder. I know. Well, yeah. yeah. I think we uh, might have exchanged an email once too, but I can't call for sure. Uh, well, she made a video about uh, about the speed of light and how what like what the whether it could be broken or whatever. And I she was she was talking about it as if it was a it's more of a barrier than like a thing because there are things that are faster than light. They're just sort yeah, of yeah. most they of just the don't have moves away from us faster lights. So it's one of those hard things to say is like because of Hubble shift, almost everything you can see with a really big telescope anyway, most of the universe is moving away from us faster than the speed of light right now. And you try to say nothing can move faster than the speed of light mm. except almost everything in reality. And, but the, the thing is what it really can't do is you cannot move information between two places faster than that speed of light. We, mm. we would call it the speed of causality, but we measured light first. Mm-hmm. And you cannot do time travel paradoxes, what it really says. But um, I mean, the basic analogy I find that works better is say, when you make something speed up, you have to add energy to it. And energy is just one t- mass is one type of energy. So if I have a wheelbarrow and that's something's rest mass, it's basic mass. As I try to go faster and faster, I have to add more and more stuff to that wheelbarrow. You can never actually get to the point where that wheelbarrow ceases to be part of that equation, though, right? Even if I got a million things inside that wheelbarrow and it's stacked up to the Himalayas, it's still there. And nothing can move at the speed of light as long as it still has rest mass or that wheelbarrow. So mm. that's the basic idea is the more energy you put in there, the harder it is to push that thing a little bit faster or a little bit further. So you have to add more energy to push it even harder. And that's just an asymptotic limit. It's not a barrier in any kind of meaningful sense that way. That's why, like, all of the, like, actual theoretical FTL that could work is like basically just taking if you treat universe the universe like a sh- like a sheet you're kind of like woofing it and you're sort of like riding the wave by just instead of moving faster than light you're just moving space itself to be faster we're, we're getting into this is a bit of a digression but i want to talk we're talking about today wormholes and teleportation i mean so it. the zone of silence the puerta de Umarca, these are places that apparently are stargates or teleporters or wormhole spots and, and they're the subject of today them in, uh, in previous episodes of this podcast we're mm-hmm. talking about the history of them in previous episodes uh and now we're now we're going to get to the science of it it sounds like what if they were wormholes or teleportation devices yeah and And i've got isaac because my last math class i took was grade 11 high school math of which i got a b minus cool uh which i think we ended at quadratic equations so um i got isaac because isaac actually knows things yeah (laughs) 
Last math class I took was when I was 19, so it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's another thing, too, and we're going to be talking a lot about quantum mechanics in this episode, uh, which is a profoundly weird area of physics. But I will say this one thing. Uh, We're going to be talking about quantum mechanics. Quantum technology right now is a very hot topic in the world of science and investment. Uh, There's untold amounts of money being poured into trying to crack quantum computing specifically because of its implications for the world of cryptography. Uh, And so every government is pouring tons of money because if you're the last person to develop quantum computers, goodbye, all of your secrets. Uh, But uh, but the other Mm. thing, too, is that um, that there's a lot of potential in here. But also some people like Sabine Hassenfelder point out that we're we might be at this sort of right before the 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 sort of hype dip in the hype cycle when it comes to quantum computing. Uh, but essentially what, what, compu- what, what quantum computers do or what the, the main thing about quantum computers is that they can solve a bunch of stuff with that, com- that regular computers can't do in very specific ways. But the main thing I wanted to talk about is that um, quantum mechanics is probably highest on the list of things that have the biggest gap between the way that the public understands it and the way that it's actually understood to the point where uh, in some ways it has literally been used in place of magic um, by like cranks that are definitely in our wheelhouse, you know, our... Uh, <laughs> Uh, who have who've determined that it's like uh like what what's uh what's that classic what the bleep do we know remember that one mm-hmm. <sighs> that sounds weird but i can't think of that one it basically tried to use things like the double slit experiment to show that mind over matter uh the, oh. the prime well you, you can do some interesting stuff with that uh, roger penrose has played out the what's it oh, cool. i'm trying to move that short for but um it's it's a quantum uh, the idea that the human neuron might be at the quantum level and therefore might be you know basically quantum itself as opposed to deterministic. So uh, which is very debatable, but also very arguable for matters. Um, I think the biggest thing with quantum is it, it becomes such a hand wavy thing. It, it is the techno babble of the modern era, while at the same time mm. it's also really cool. And you know, we always talk about how hard it is to understand, but in some ways it really isn't too tricky. It's just that it's. If you're already learning basic science, it can feel really counterintuitive. But when you don't know too much science, sometimes it's actually a little bit easier to understand because you're not trying to unlearn things. Yeah. It feels like, would you say it's like akin to maybe, uh, like, you know how when kids are younger, they're able to pick up different languages faster. Mm -hmm. But then once, as you get older and you're like, if you only have learned that one language, it's harder to to pick up a second language. Same one for relativity is a lot like that too. It's because it's so counterintuitive, the basic mechanistic way we tend to look at things under Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. It comes off as a little bit more complex than this. The the core thing to understand with quantum mechanics was that we have this old Zeno's paradox concept of if I cut something in half, I cut something in half again and again, I just keep cutting in half forever and ever. If I get close to the wall by half a step and then another quarter of a step, mm-hmm. I'll never quite get there. And we find out at the quantum level, we have things that don't get cut in half anymore. That's literally where the world's coming from. It's quantized. There'll be mm-hmm. things like you don't have a proton that has one and a half proton charges or one and a half proton masses. There's no electron with two thirds of normal electron mass. It's all very discrete, specific. And um, that's what the quantum mechanics thing comes from is the idea that when you get down that scale, there are some very specific limitations and they only fall in certain areas. And that's where the teleportation actually comes in at the basic level. It gets a little bit more complex, but even those orbital models of atoms, the electrons only have to be in this place or that place, not in between them. Mm-hmm. So to get from one to the other, it actually has to teleport. Now, it was never actually in that specific orbit. It's smeared across the whole area as a probability thing, but that's where it gets a little counterintuitive to understand. But that's where it comes from. That it was going from A to B with no transition. And that is a great example of how that works too, is because if you're trying to understand the difference between discrete and um, you know, what you usually have with numbers, just think of an alphabet. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can have 1.5 or 1 and 2 thirds. You don't have a letter that is half A and half C. Or right. halfway between the letters F and G. It's, well, it's right. well, well, what about that Q one G. letter that's like an A and E at the same time? That doesn't count, and we're not going to pay attention to you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so basically because of some, because of that, um, the reason why, so, so let me try to see if I can get the, the quantum, cause quantum computers play a big role in this. So Quantized. quantum computers are essentially little atom or atoms that, um, so in, in quantum mechanics, atoms have things called spin, which they can either be spin up or spin down. Um, the thing though, is that because of the way that quantum mechanics works, where they, everything is probabilistic. So things can be on a range of things based on probability, which means, uh, if you don't 
measure where the atom's at, it can be in sort of a varied of amount of up and down at the same time based on what probability it is one of those things. And so for uh, solving certain types of math problems, specifically the reverse factoring of numbers, that they can solve that much faster than a regular computer, which like, all right, let me see. All of cryptography is based on the fact that computers are really bad at reverse factoring numbers, uh, except that qubits can do that so very well. <laughs> let's say that I have a, a random number generator for the moment, and I lock um, you know, a person in a room with a phone book, an old school phone book. These are devices, for those who don't know, that uh, had everybody's phone number on the table. Right, right, right. right. Say, wow, I, just a while that we let that happen. I know that somebody yeah. named Dan uh, has this you know, has this phone number in the book. You know, that he called me. Find, call this man and, and find out if it's him. He'll you know tell him blah if he answers the phone and he'll recognize me, right? And so you sit somebody down inside a, a quantum room like a Schrodinger's cat and you shut the door. And during that time, he's going to randomly call someone and that's named Dan out of that book. This is a conceptual example for anyone's going to upset the physics isn't quite right here. Um, mm-hmm. So while he, the door is locked, I'm not absorbing it. The, the he could have called any one of those random Dans in the book and called them and made contact with them. And I open the door in a way that lets me ask the one who actually got the correct answer. Maybe I say something like, "When you get the right person, open the door." Mm. And so the the version of him that actually called the right Dan is the one that opens the closed box and collapses the wave function. And hi, I got him. He's the right. It's Dan Bartholomew, right? Uh, eight six seven five three zero nine. We got him. But <laughs> this is the tricky thing with quantum is the, the simple concept is I'm I'm doing a manhunt. I'm trying to find somebody who's in the woods, right? We know where he started at and we know how fast he can walk. So we have a circle out to the time we, you know, one hour, he'd be three miles away, right, from walking. Mm-hmm. He could be anywhere in that circle and there's a probability of where he'd be. And we say, well, yeah, he could be anywhere in that place, but we know he is at one of those places. But when we find him, we know what place it is. The only difference with quantum is we're saying that personal particle could have been anywhere inside that area uh, and we don't know until we check it but the, the the difference is it actually was in all those places simultaneously until mm-hmm. we actually checked it. Until, it wasn't yeah. where he might be, it's where he actually was and that's the counterintuitive aspect. But when you have 50 billion coins, you're flipping heads or tails or you know, dice you're throwing, that gets very normalized when you start looking at how it often comes with heads or tails and that's the whole thing is we were made out of trillions upon trillions of particles so the fact that they were smeared all over the place except when checked doesn't matter statistically. It's just like an you know an election. It doesn't matter if Bob or Tom down the road might be voting for Jack Johnson or John Jackson. You know statistically from the polling, it's going to come out very close to that one number. And mm-hmm. that's basically in all existence. Even the cellular level, things are mechanistic because of you know that statistical polling effect of the quantum stuff. It just factors out. But that's the one counterintuitive aspect to really understand about quantum is where we don't know for sure if the cat's alive or dead till we open it up in the real world. In the quantum world, it's because it really wasn't. One way or another, it could be A or B. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. that's the only real difference you have to get. Well, I was going to say, I know you were worried about that example of people being like, you know, the, the, you know, maybe it doesn't check out scientifically or whatever because it was a, it's a hypothetical example. I, I have great news on that front, which is that um, we're talking about ancient aliens. So I don't think people are super concerned about their uh, science uh, <laughs> mathing out too, 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 too much. And I think yours makes more sense so far. Well, it can vary because you know, for a lot of folks who follow the conspiracy stuff, as we'll say, they, they are usually all pretty interested in the science. They're just mostly interested in the science that, uh, you know, appeals to their, their mm-hmm. interests better, I'd say. I'm, I'm often on a lot of shows that are what you call more paranormal, and they love their science too. They just have yeah. certain parts that they care less about. I'm, I'm For me, it's great sci-fi. For them, it might be real. Some of them, they just enjoy it as an idea. But uh, it obviously, they don't appreciate being poked about whether or not their theory is very realistic. But then who does? You know? <laughs> I get you. That's fair. That's fair. I don't know if Tristan has this on his uh, outline, but I'd love to ask you this question because it feels like the idea behind some of these sites, they're, um, they're like sort of... Uh, sites built by like you know stone workers back in back in ancient times um no real uh like electronic technology obviously um mm-hmm. but people are claiming them to be you know wormholes stargates things like that what's the possibility that they that one that a wormhole could just like appear out of nowhere 
without yeah, without people making one. Like the, the infinite improbabilities issue is we tend to assume that there's any wormholes that are already in existence. They they'd be from the inflationary era right after the Big Bang, which is also still you know disputed the uh, in theory right now. But uh, mm-hmm. the idea being that when the universe was about the size of a basketball or a car, it's you know in between like atom size to basketball size, very tiny, or well, at least all portion of the universe because it might have been a bigger one outside it. That they would have been at, at that scale, what would become the galactic scale would also be still tinier than atom. And mm-hmm. if you have a little place where the electron would be opening between, say, it's you know, A state and B state, that tiny little micro nanometer space, that mm-hmm. would blow up to something that would be at the galactic scale nowadays. So if something had popped up there as a rupture, a, a defect in space time, that could have stretched out to be a wormhole nowadays. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one of the ways you can get to wormholes. There's a lot of different wormholes and uh, wormhole ish like ideas. And we use the all referencing to the uh, the Einstein Rosen bridge. That's not the only one. That's just the one people tend to hear about, and that's the one that's got. I hate saying it this way: the most theoretical basis to be reality, except that it has no evidence into reality. Mm. So we talked. We were just talking about quantum computers, right? Yeah, uh, we were talking about Stonehenge, of- I think. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all is Stonehenge a quantum computer? Probably not. <laughs> but um, but basically, the, because of the reverse factoring thing, um, quantum computer, the first com- first person who can figure out quantum computers, the first team that can figure it out, uh, is basically going to break every single way that we store passwords and secrets uh, everywhere. And there's now like sort of a race to try and try and find something that is uh, that a, even a quantum computer can't uh, crack, basically. Mm-hmm. You can do that. The other thing is the same technology that lets you do the super cryptography stuff with quantum, which is kind of overhyped, is the idea that uh, you can also use that same concept to generate uncrackable stuff from quantum you know, cryptography. So it is not the thing that's going to end all secrets. It, you know, Privacy is always in danger. I don't want to you know, downplay that, but almost all of your real hacking issues come down to people just being careless with their own passwords and data security. It's not, you know, we have unhackable stuff right now. We have options like one-time pads. Quantum mm-hmm. computer does allow you to break things like that. It just lets you break your, like, to the 256-bit type stuff. So you just have to change over. We have methods that would be immune to quantum cryptography that are already in place, or already exist, I should say, but they're not as efficient to use in, against other hacking methods, and, you know, there's better to use right now the ones that would be. So if we start getting quantum computers that could do this, we just shift into using those other ones. And um, probably... Not an issue for another decade, I'd, I'd honestly think. But, uh, you know, when it pops up, uh, it could be an issue for a lot of existing stuff that people had not actually bothered to switch over the cryptography on. Well, as you well know, Isaac, um, things not being a real technology for several decades yet has not stopped people from investing tons of money in it or uh, <laughs> getting very hyped about it for no reason. Just watch, Just look at my Google alert for fusion power, for an example. Um, so, so, so the first topic we're going to get into is teleportation, which there's only really one type of real teleportation that we've been able to do. And that is quantum teleportation. Now, uh, here's what I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with Isaac Arthur's, uh, who I feel like is a reliable source on a video, uh, mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm. did on teleportation. So here's a little bit that we got first. The reason why teleportation is probably a big deal is because of, uh, Star Trek, basically due to budget constraints, uh, Star Trek, uh, implemented the transporter. And it's sort of become a staple of sci-fi. Another example, I think you were talking about how this was set up to promote a TV show. In the novel Altered Carbon, teleportation involves transmitting digital copies of the mind to an awaiting copy, which is, it's sort of cheating, but I get it. Um, But basically, the idea is that in that form is that you would record every single atom and isotope in a human body and transport it somewhere, which would basically require an insane amount of data, basically more than any functional computer could actually really have. Um, mm-hmm. at least at this point, unless you're like, you know, using a Matryoshka brain or something to process a, a transportation, uh-huh, uh-huh. uh, which is a computer powered by an entire sun. Um, oh, <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, you might be able like to do lot. data compression, but there is going to be issues. And trust me, if there's one thing you're not going to want to be lossy data, it's going to be <laughs> teleportation. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to be the human version yeah. of a JPEG. <laughs> And, and I think that is the key thing with it is is how much compression will be okay because if you're trying to send a human in, in terms of like every atom state, you know, does it really matter if the DNA for one cell in your body uh, was not a 100% perfect match for the DNA that came over? And, you know, your mileage might vary, but for the most part, your DNA doesn't match across your body perfectly anyway. You can really compress something like human DNA, especially one person's. You don't need a trillion DNA bits sent to somebody. Mm-hmm. But um, when you get to the brain, 
that's a little iffier, and that's there's true. a lot of debate as to how much actual memory there's in the brain, and how you record that. Um, but then, in emphasis, you're always copying there, and this is what gets around the no cloning issue you have with other teleportation. You're sending a copy. That might be a very popular way to teleport people in the future. Say, so send me a copy of the brain, and put it on Android for me somewhere, or you know, mm. what they call them sleeves and ultra carbon and other people. You know, you might do things like that. Um, and you probably do a lot of compression on the human brain for that matter, too. It takes a lot of data, though. And do you really want that floating around through space where someone could presumably hack it, intercept it, et cetera? Mm. So you got to keep a copy on hand. Now you got another one of you. Teleportation in physics, though, and talking quantum teleportation, that doesn't, um, you know, that, that's not making a copy somewhere. That's actually, you're changing your state of some other atoms exist. Like, if I quantum teleport person, yeah, I'd be turning some existing matter that was at that location into a configuration that was identical to me. So if I'm teleporting into, uh, a room where Scott's at, I'm suddenly turning into Scott. Scott is, by the way, he's turning into me. Kaboom. Right? And this is trickier than people tend to think because you can change the state of any atom into another atom. There was a technical finite probability of various atoms turning into other atoms, so they might turn into one molecule of chocolate, and they could theoretically turn into an entire candy ball, possibly complete with a van. It was a finite, but ridiculously tiny number, chance of that happening. The other thing, though, is while that's happening, these physical processes are releasing a lot of radiation, for instance, so you might be popping up into a place, and yes, you've appeared, and everybody around you has been blown up by a gigantic <laughs> nuclear bomb as it goes up. Uh-huh. However... There would still be a finite, albeit ridiculously tiny, probability that every last one of those gamma photons that came out from your existence, as you, you changed all those atoms around, would miss an atom on the way out. That they would just mm. not hit something. You know, your odds that I didn't. You know, I'm standing in the middle of an, an atomic explosion, and not a single particle hit me. Mm-hmm. There's a finite probability of that happening. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's, that's where multiverse stuff possible. gets a little bit weird because there should always be a large number of universes where you didn't get hit by a single gamma photon. Or maybe I hit by 10 of them, you know, maybe one randomly. Yeah. Real. There should be billions upon billions upon trillions of universes where teleportation absolutely does not work, but people think it do because they hit a switch and randomly a copy of them appeared on the other side of the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just by happens. Stance, yeah. And yeah. it happened a million times in a row every time they try to check it, so they believe it. <laughs> I, I did like in your video, though, that you also mentioned that you could use it to, uh, say, teleport out cancer or um, yeah. get immortality. Or the most fun one is as a interesting weight loss technique. Um, <laughs> it's all the other utilized mm. in science fiction. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like the replicator. It's one of those things you just shouldn't have put into the, the, the setting because it's so <laughs> breaking, you know? Yeah, you might yeah. make Thomas Riker or something. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. That was like a piece of beta cancer. Where he got like imprisoned by the Cardassians during the Dominion War or something. We need more Thomas Riker uh, stuff. But uh, so the other thing, though, is that, yeah, as you as you mentioned, the teleportation that we actually have been able to witness is so like basically like, can we do can we do teleportation? There are two answers. Either. Yes, we've done it several times to quite impressive degrees um, Mm -hmm. or no. And it's unlikely we're going to do it anytime soon. Those are the two answers, depending upon what you mean by teleportation. Right. Because you can and we have teleported uh, quantum information, which, again, we're going to get into a whole different um, kettle of fish with that one, but uh, you can do it via quantum entanglement, but it is not faster than light, and it is destructive by nature and requires a channel which therefore makes it so that it can't go faster than light um, because the only, other than that, you're just... Um, well, you can only send trivial data, and I, I mean, it's it's easy enough to demonstrate as a concept. I should point out, we definitely can do teleportation. The sun walks on teleportation. That's how fusion works, but it's very short range. With teleportation, imagine I addressed a letter to two people. Inside mm-hmm. one was a, was a, I said, inside this letter is either a red or a green piece of paper. I've sent two copies of the letter. One's got the red, one's got the green. They are entangled, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, I sent them at the same time, and I open one of these copies up, and I say, I'm saying the other one to Alpha Centauri, and one was being sent to Epsilon Iodani, I don't know, 10, 15 light years away. Yeah. And when you open that letter up, instantaneously, faster than the speed of light, you know what that other person's letter says. That is quantum entanglement. That information, that spooky action and distance effectively too, um, as an analogy anyway, that doesn't in any way help you communicate faster than light anything else though. You just have that one trivial piece of information. When I get that particle and I say, aha, these entangled particles, mine is up, so the one that was sent to the other guy has to be down. Yeah. Now the fact that that transmit is is, is weird, that's the spooky action bit, but yeah. that's conceptually what's happening, why you can't send more information with 
it. That's all. To kind of to kind of build on this, uh, so in your video, Isaac, you also propose another form of teleportation, which I found very amusing, which is that you can use nanomachines, tiny machines, to basically just tear you apart atom by atom and put you back together like some sort of Lego kit. Yeah. But you did mention oh. that doing so would basically be akin to uh, a, a, like setting off a small nuclear explosion. <laughs> you're basically tearing apart all of the beta bonds in our bodies and yeah. just... Uh, also, I imagine I, the amount of the, the amount of screaming that would take place while someone's <laughs> being teleported also is well, a little being unsettling. Integrated by robots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think the idea came from what was it? Pushing Ice. It's another by Alistair Reynolds, which is probably I, I would not spoil it for anyone, but definitely worth looking into. It's he has great hard science fiction, but it's just mentions kind of a throwaway there of, of somebody teleporting that way, where basically they're full of nanotechnology, and that nanotechnology has the ability to rapidly grab every last bit of them, so they can suddenly be rapidly the accelerated at ridiculously high speeds and reassembled on the spot. And that, you know, it's viable. I think he does something like that also in his House of Suns book for their equivalent teleportation. It's not fashion light, but hey, if I can get from here to Germany in five seconds because I can have my, you know, particles accelerated yeah. at 5 million G or whatever it is, that, that's close enough to teleportation for me. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's close enough. Love me some, Al- yeah. love me some Alistair Reynolds. Alistair yes. Reynolds wrote my favorite short story. Which one? Uh, uh, Beyond the Aguila Rift. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, who doesn't want to be caught by a Lovecraftian space spider, but then be tricked into uh, a fun a fun vacation while happening? Um, <laughs> anyways. He's definitely uh, in the Lovecraftian vein for a lot of his works, but this is an example like with Warm Horse 2. They're not instantaneous. People think if you go through a normal Warm Horse, again, this is the Einstein Rosenbridge version. It's like, oh, I step here and then I'm out there. No, you have a trans transit time those those tunnels are mm. long they're not even necessarily shorter than the real space journey they are they are through space and they take time they are they are could be weeks months years uh mm-hmm. millennia you know <laughs> they're not instantaneous yeah. uh the other proposal you put forward is that there's something called and I, again i did not do the, the the deep dive into this but you uh, mentioned something called meson specifically a kind called a neutral pion mm-hmm. that can fly through normal matter uninterrupted before decaying rather explosively yeah this is a problem you have with a lot of things in metal physics. Mesons are, um, I mean, they are two quarks, basically. Uh, and this is the same for a lot of the other ones, the two quark combinations as opposed to the three quark ones that us and other more stable particles are made out of. Um, but a meson can basically just pass through anything, and that's not really unique to these mesons. That some wouldn't, that's not really unique to them. We have other ones like uh, neutrinos that will pass through, you know, like a light year of lead, they like to say, without being likely to get intercepted. Um, but uh, there's a lot of things like that in nature that do that. Dark matter, for instance, say, well, dark matter is weird. We can't find any examples of it. It's like, well, it's hard to find an example of a neutrino, too. Um, that, but uh, there's a lot of things that nature just don't interact with certain forces that much. And the weak nuclear force is called that for a reason. as well, the four fundamental physical forces. And it's a lot weaker than the strong or electromagnetic force, way stronger than gravity still, but it's, it's, it's very weak. And it is positive and negative, and basically, your odds of having two particles intersect each other is ridiculously low in that context. So they just blow right through each other like it wasn't there. Um, yeah, I think when you, you do that, it's called that. Uh, it's called nuclear fission. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. Well, that's uh, well, that's what happens in supernovae. Is is you actually have a situation where things are dense enough that you can actually have weak interactions having a meaningful factor into things. That's kind of how we get a lot of the heavier particles. Although a lot of stuff is not made in the center of supernovae like we tend to think that it happens like neutron star modules, etc. And that's another place where things are dense enough that you can have these weak interactions taking place at a regular level. The same for the early universe and the Big Bang situation, which is how we get a lot of these very more exotic potential particles mm-hmm. or constructs being made. And I think that the key thing with the weak force is to say, if I were to turn something into those particles, you know, that's the idea with the mesons is I'm going to convert you into this state, right? Where you're made out of mesons or you're made out of dark matter neutrinos. It's not that you're going faster and light this way. It's that you're going through anything at all. And this might not be the best way to teleport a person, but be a great way to teleport a large packet of energy into a bunker or ship. It's going right through their armor and blows up. Mm. And you know, you're the best armor in the world. You can have Wolverine-style adamantium covering every last pinch of the, but it just goes right through. It's your face, sword, as it were, and mm. uh, pops up and blows you up. And that's the best usage of teleportation with a ship like that. It's not to send people over, it's to send bombs. You say, well, we're mm-hmm. going to send a boarding party. Mm-hmm. 
And anytime you can send a boarding party, it's so much easier to just send a bomb. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never get that. Never, never cover that one in Star Trek. Um, yeah. yeah, I was, I was, that's one, one thing about Star Trek. I always think about with teleporters. It's just like, or transporters. It's like, they never factor in that you could transport somebody, um, like without consent mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the, the ramifications of what you could get away with that are terrifying. Um, oh, especially the, the copying version. La- you make a copy of some by teleportation, Thomas Reich style, and mm-hmm. they're your prisoner that you're keeping to do whatever horrible things you're going to do to them. And nobody even knows because the copy of them or the original I'm still walking around. Mm-hmm. But the scary thing is you do have something like mind uploading too. We just take a copy of the mind and put it into a virtual reality or a clone or an Android. Yes. So. I also have watched black mirror. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Black Mirror basically covers like the dark ramifications of mind uploading in several episodes. Oh, the only episode I've seen is the first one with the pig. Um, oh, yeah, that doesn't cover <laughs> in that one. But uh, you might like uh, you might like San Junipero. I think it won an Emmy. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid the the pig one scared me off the show. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the pig one was an odd choice to start the show off with. Um, oh, although it'd be like weird. That. <laughs> although although given David Cameron's uh, biography, it turns out uh, weirdly prescient. Anyways. Oh. Um, uh, anyways, um, but yeah, there's like a whole, there's an episode called the black museum, which, uh, shows like a lot of the horrible ramifications of mind uploading yeah. anyways, uh, or also the Christmas special, the Christmas special is terrifying. Uh, it's got John Hamm. Great, great as, episode. As a Christmas special should be. <laughs> yeah. It's the most terrifying. It's a Christmas, it's a Christmas special of a show that to this day still occasionally gives me nightmares. Um, <laughs> So oh, the, uh, the last, the last uh, teleportation uh, use case you mentioned was something called what you dubbed hammer space, mm-hmm. which would basically just be that you could keep all like tools and like objects that you need in like hammer space, basically just like a big warehouse somewhere. And then you could just teleport it to you whenever you need it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there'll be the one like your, it's, it's the question is, is this an extra universe, like a infinite magazine for your gun? Or are we talking about a refrigerator door that opens up onto this icy moon mm-hmm. where you keep your food at because screw electric bills. I just mm-hmm. have a portal in my, you know, and, and then I think it was a Dan Simmons and Hyperion plays that a lot where people have houses that are literally each room is built into a different place in you know light years away because they gotten that cheap with teleportation and wormhole was that point or you know portal space i think rogers lazzy did something similar to that in his uh courts of chaos amber series the second half but the idea that you're just knitting together entirely different sections of different planets to build your home in and say well if you can do that you know this is this is you know when you have a technology in sci-fi you always want to think about that ramification they say if you can do that if i can teleport you from a to b while teleporting a bomb and um in the uh jj abrams star trek uh reboot um from what was that 2009 where they, they have the uh warp travel or interstellar teleportation going on mm-hmm. and I said, well you can now teleport from one planet to another why do you have starships at all what would be mm-hmm. the point at that point what do people and, need with a starship and then yeah. uh peter hamilton's Carwell saga they look say with the wormholes you have these stargates why do you ever shut them off and there's a 38 minute rule in stargate series but you got mm-hmm. the money all the time so now i have this portal going i don't send people through i run a train through there on a fiber optic cable it's got a train track it's got fiber optic cable we run heat condensers through there we run power plants on the other side i got some wasteland place somewhere where i have all my giant nuclear reactors and i don't even bother being safe with them they're just pumping out the radiation because we just bring back mm-hmm. through giant superconducting cables right through the one wall and kind of the same thing i want to terraform a planet well it's like well i need to get water on this planet where do i get it from there's a water planet over there why don't we just go ahead you're not using it i'll use it the same for power plants you say well why don't I just sink one into this into the into a stall and you know maybe it's the little tiny little hole that big although that might not be quite as effective as people think stars are very low power in their cores but uh in terms of how much they're actually producing. They're like one ton of metal produced enough to run a light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that they have there's yeah, a lot of tons. A lot of it. And it's very hot. hot so. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard stars are very big. Yeah. Um that that's just a rumor though. Uh no one's ever actually seen one in person. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so basically the idea though, uh quantum teleportation. It's a way of transferring quantum information from one location to another, but uh doesn't really work for physical objects, really. Kind mm, of? Uh, you kind of maybe you could potentially uh, it- if you can build a big enough quantum computer and get enough big enough entanglement, um, okay. then in theory, you could move an entire person uh, from point A to point B. And there's no, there is no, this thing is, there's no theoretical limit as to how far that can go. And there's no theoretical limit as to how many of them that can be. 
but that's kind of like got to have a context on that saying like with a big enough level i could move a planet until we actually build something that could you know be a big enough level you don't really notice all the mechanical strain issues that might pop up and they are a lot of the question of where's my fulcrum going at you know where am i <laughs> putting this level am i putting it over the top of the moon how's that work i think but, it doesn't it doesn't help that i feel like the trend for technology right now is making everything thinner and smaller we're not going to yeah. get a big enough computer everything's going to be thin and light we're going to be able to carry it around in our backpacks we can't oh, we're might, never going to build a little tiny chip then you suddenly teleport a much smaller object from point a to point b but you have to at that point you just send the data but i mean there are options for it out there do, do i know any scientists who think you'd ever be able to teleport a human over a real distance with 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 quantum anything no no yeah it's basically i say well i can figure out how to move a stick therefore i can move the galaxy mm. so you, you just kind of assume that there was going to be some real limitations on this starting with a sheer amount of data you have to move and, and we can't just always hand read mm. that at quantum computers because you know the, these these two concepts do not stack <laughs> yeah 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 I did. Uh, I did see though an art while I was doing research for this that there is uh, the first case of a uh, an object that they were able to make entangled that was large enough to be seen with the naked eye, which is quite, a, which is like a huge feat. So just showing where we're at on this. Interesting. <laughs> it was like a piece of sapphire, I think. Oh, cool. Well, what's neat about a lot of materials is you can actually get the entanglement's basically about, well, let's try to think of a good way to phrase this. It's always hard with quantum. You can get mm-hmm. relatively large objects. You can, like a graphene atom, right? Uh, can, it is entangled. You can send that together as chunk. That's 60 atoms. Um, or was it a buckyball? There's no real limitation on that. And, and metals like, well, I shouldn't say metals, items like sapphire or diamond that are very, very tightly organized, you can actually potentially treat that as one large object that could move mm-hmm. as a group. But um, the thing about entanglement is is the big one is people are kind of want that's the, the, the counterportation idea is that they don't have to be entangled in advance. So that's, that's kind of what they're aiming with a lot of stuff is the idea that you wouldn't actually have to all those entangled. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is a big one that comes up, is once things are entangled, once I check them, right, mm-hmm. one time they're no longer entangled. So if I have two particles or any atoms like that that are entangled, the moment I check their position, e.g. complete the teleportation, they're no longer entangled. So you can't go backwards again and say, well, now they got mm-hmm. X and B way over across the side of the galaxy. They stopped being entangled the moment I measured them. That entanglement was what I basically said. Oh, okay, I snapped that to make the process work. It's done once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I like there's some sci-fi that mis that misunderstands quantum entanglement to be like that it could be some sort of like uh, super luminal method of communication. Yeah. But uh, communicating not only that one thing envelope one time. It can only yeah. be that one thing, but also uh, basically none of the knowledge you get well that out of that would be any different from random guessing because it's going to come out as basically random. Right. Yeah. He, all you're finding out is I got envelope A or B, and I know the other guy got B. He's got the red envelope. I got the green one. That is all you get to learn out of that process. And because mm-hmm. believe me, we try. People have spent decades trying to figure out how do I make this thing give me some other piece of info. It never has worked. And mm-hmm. people are certainly welcome to keep trying, but there's just, you know, all the obvious ways you think of trying to get that to work, you say, no, no. And you go through the matter, like, nope, that wouldn't work at all. No, no. You can, all you get out of that is A or B. And then as soon as you got that, it's done. And that is essentially called the no cloning theorem? Uh, close enough, yeah. The no cloning theorem is the idea that, well, basically you can't clone a particle in a different location. If I go ahead and make a state of something, like if I quantum teleport to you onto Scott, suddenly Scott turns into you. Scott's always <laughs> the victim of teleportation <laughs> accidents. I'm like you sitting over here tra- changing into multiple people. <laughs> Like I just like a little Tuvix over here. (laughs) He's the Tuvix of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, that was. Uh, that was actually a good episode of, of Voyager. I would say that. That was a pretty good one. Um, but but um, especially for the early seasons. Um, you know, the moment that I make that copy of you elsewhere, mm-hmm. you have to cease to resist in that process. Um, which is one reason why it's interesting for copying purposes is because one thing you don't really want is that Thomas Riker situation where you have somebody left over on the pad. It didn't quite happen. You got two of you now because then you have to pay both of them. And oh, yeah, we should probably right. actually right. tell I realize. Scott pay. Thomas Riker was an episode of TNG where I've they had a trans- next gen. That's the uh, only yeah. Star Trek I've seen. But Thomas Riker is like one episode, two I've, actually. I, but, but it's a good episode. I know okay, that. Episode. Then you've seen it. Okay, never mind. You can explain um, it for let me let for me for the see. internet for yeah. the for the exposition piece. The audience. There's yeah, a yeah. Star Trek where many many years before he showed up on the Enterprise, uh, a lieutenant commander or lieutenant Riker, I think he was lieutenant at the time, had beamed down to a planet and they had promised teleporting him back up, and they they did some strange stuff with lifting the safeguards to teleport him mm-hmm. and, and the beam bounced up and part of it bounced back down and rematerialized as him while another part came back up so there's a copy of him down this 
horrible planet, barely alive, until they found a signal and picked him up. And he was very angry about, uh, well, really about eight years of life having missed him. He turns up as a random villain in Deep Space Nine later. Um, oh, that's fun. anti But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, experimental studies have shown that quantum teleportation can be performed using different objects like photons or atoms or certain circuits as long as you're willing to get them to a temperature that is slightly be- above absolute zero so that they have no electrical resistance, um, hmm. otherwise known as a superconductor. Yeah. It, is, it is very difficult to get... Well, most things in life like to bounce around and move around and really don't compile very well for the purpose of trying to precisely measure them, which is what you really kind of need in a quantum setup. So, And this is another one of those issues. Would you like to teleport? Yes, of course, we must freeze every atom in your body in a way that doesn't kill you and really freeze it too. Not like Antarctica or even like Pluto, like places nowhere in the universe would be that cold. It is, it is a lot of the tricks with things like this. It's very hard to get things to stop moving. And I think they did with Walt Disney's yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I, I, I grew up believing that was true, but it turns out that he, no, he does not have his no, head. No, it's not. He's yeah. cremated, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that was so disappointing for me. <laughs> the opposite of being frozen. It's being cremated. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's been, yeah, he did the, he did the thing he did. What's it called? He did what the, the little, uh, nanites would have done. They just didn't put them back together. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is that, um, in order to do this, you need to, all right, let me see if I can get this. Let me see if I can remember my own writing. Like I said, I've gone to some weird places in my brain to do this. So the resources required for quantum teleportation involves generating an entangled bell state of qubits performing a bell measurement and manipulating the quantum state of the other qubit from the pair. The protocol involves generating a bell state, performing a bell measurement, and sending two bits of classical information and modifying the bell state qubit at the receiver location. All right. (laughs) Was that good? Did Tristan get it? It works for me. I, <laughs> I am not an expert uh, on, on, on quantum computing. I did an episode on it, and it, it has gone in like the four years since that I've barely looked into it beyond that. Yeah. It's definitely improved, but it is one of those things where it's a fascinating new area of how they do the research on it, but it's mm-hmm. not it's not the most overhyped thing in science's history, but it kind of is um, really ooh, up there. So. Right, right below cold fusion. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it, it both is and isn't. So yeah, and cold fusion it also. Is, there you go. It's one of those things that looks very, very exciting until you can't tell where the field is going or how exciting it is until you observe it, and then it collapses, and it looks like yes. a very... Right. <laughs> it is the Schrodinger's cat of science. Uh, and again, this is one of the issues I tend to have with like string theory and, and anything with quantum, too, is it gets so overhyped in the narrative and so many the resources in it because I mean, you know, they would like to get their papers published better or they'd like to yeah. get more money for their field. So they tend to play a lot of the hype a little bit and I don't want to criticize them too much for that, but nobody should ever be talking string theory with the public because it's not like there's not enough there to make it real and it gets people confused and think yeah, this is what our scientists believe is true. The same for things like mini Ward's theory versus Copenhagen, which all the, the Schrodinger's cat experiment is Copenhagen interpretation of quantum. Mini Ward's theory is the one where it says there's a universe where he's alive and another one where he's dead. These are contradictory theories. They can't both be simultaneously true. Even in quantum, they can't simultaneously be true, which is always everyone's next question on that. Um, a lot of these are other theories exist for it too. The thing is, they all say, yes, we predict the results perfectly. Is there any evidence this theory is true? No, not one bit of evidence. Same for string theory, you know. We don't know how quantum actually works yet. So I think with quantum, we talk about quantum computing, what its limits are. We don't know because we don't actually know how quantum works. We know exactly what it does. Does, we can predict what it does very well. That, that's the easy part, ironically enough. Hmm. Um, but we don't know how it actually operates. So you get these limitations say, I don't know if this is actually possible because we don't really know how this works yet. You know? I, do, I do love when we talk about this kind of stuff that it does seem like every few years, um, all of these scientists who are like fighting over papers, like it seems like it's the source of many a bar fight at random <laughs> conferences. Mm-hmm. And then every few years, they have to get together in a city and be like, all right, guys, what's going we on? We have to figure <laughs> out what the hell's going on. And then they come together with a consensus that then immediately falls apart the second the scientists leave and do their own experiments. 
Um, I think the Copenhagen interpretation was like a bunch of people came together and be like, all right, guys, we got to get our story straight on what this is going to be. And then they came to a conclusion that immediately, I think there's also one for string theory where a bunch of string theorists came together and were like, all right, this is the theory. Then immediately I fell apart. Speaking of string theory, though, um, just I got to know what the beat on this guy is. Um, so another interesting frequent guest on Ancient Aliens is Michio Kaku, the apparently like one of the big founders of string theory. Uh-huh. And it's just like, does, does, does Michio Kaku just say yes to anybody? <laughs> Is that his thing? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not, I, I will not speak to that too much because I, I go on every show too. You know, if, if somebody invites okay. me, on, well, yeah, you're I, here. On, this yeah, is I go on, you're on Yeah, I'll do paranormal <laughs> shows, things like that. I'm probably fine with it. Just speaking to what the science is. Um, it, he is a big one for string theory. Um, I, he certainly is good at what he does, but uh, you know what shows he goes on. That's not necessarily indicative. That's more of a flavor style, right? Okay, I, yeah. My philosophy is I go, you know, if I'm going on a conspiracy show or something that's not necessarily a very pro-science channel, I'm going to where the, go proselytize to the heathens as it were, because you don't need to speak to the choir. And mm-hmm. what I mostly found a lot of those things, those, though, is with the paranormal groups, they usually are very into science. They, they, they you know, they're just, maybe they've decided something that's more from science fiction for you or my point of view that we enjoy science fiction is more likely science fact, but except mm-hmm. for those places where they have a break with it, with the observable science because of what they afford to believe they are, they're usually very pro-science. They might not know tons of it, but then some of them really do. And the other thing is a lot of times, you know, you'll have just as many problems with more science-oriented groups as they don't believe something that actually has turned out to be true. Uh, they, are, they are a little bit too skeptical. So I would say, going back to him real quick, what shows he goes on, you know, I'm all for going wherever you want to go to talk to people and explain the real science to them. I would not, however, say the string theory really qualifies as science at this point. That's the issue. Ooh. It's not that, well, Ooh. yeah, and that might have said, you know, Sean Keel too, but it's not the people they aren't scientists. They really are. They're really great. You know, I'm fond of string theory too in many ways, but mm. it's not science at the moment. It's just a theory based on math that draws on existing science to be, be its basis. It can mm. potentially predict things very well, but there's no scientific evidence of it. And this is where you get the kind of the popular, you know, popular view of how we do science. If I can't find evidence of something in the material universe to back it up, I can't say that I'm actually doing science. That doesn't mean that it's not thought. Doesn't mean that's not deep philosophy or even accurate. It might be true. It's one of the best theories out there for these things. Same for Copenhagen or same for many worlds. You might say, well, you can't be saying that Copenhagen or many worlds are real science. So yeah, we, you know, that it gets iffy. Where's the line between how much speculation is possible? We would absolutely go get data if we had any way of doing that data. But the problem is we can predict things under many different quantum theories who are presumably contradictory that accurately predict the results. I don't think you can make that argument with string theory as much. This does not in any way diminish the theories. The problem is they've been overhyped a little bit too much in terms of everyone thinking they follow. These are very great researchers, and I'll probably get some hate mail over that, but <laughs> it is what it is. Those theories themselves cannot be said to be scientifically proven, and since there is no current model for falsifying them, they're not science. Although that's a debate that some folks have been having trying to have recently. They're very mm-hmm. good at math. Yeah, um, well, they're very good at math. I don't think they disagree with me on those points. Either. They probably, you know, before different phrasing on it. Uh, Sean Kiel actually wrote a really good article on why we need to move the term science to start including things like that. Because not that they disagree about getting evidence, is that they just don't see any framework for being able to get it. And if you should be able to speculate about these things from a scientific standpoint, it's a good argument. I just don't happen to agree with it completely. Hmm. So, so from what I can pick up from when it comes to quantum computing and, and, and teleportation specifically is that, that it's starting to get used because one of the major issues with quantum computers is something called coherence, which is essentially that uh, for a computer to really function properly, it basically has to never, ever make a mistake. And qubits have an issue, have an issue where um, the entangled states and stuff that they make to f- solve things sort of falls apart after a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if you add too many atoms to the system, it gets, uh, it gets sort of harder to keep things going and you need more and more, you need like more stuff, keeping it even colder and it just gets nasty. So they're thinking of using teleportation to just create like, kind of like how, when we hit the limit of what we could use with CPU cores, then we just started adding more cores. And so they're trying to use teleportation to sort of network between different qubit systems to sort of uh, do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so that, that's interesting. The recent advances that I wanted to cover are that at Stony Brook University, there was this breakthrough in energy teleportation where an IBM supercomputing quantum computer was able to mitigate errors uh, and, observe success, and observed a successful transfer of energy, as well as negative energy, which has potential applications in the study of gravitational field and quantum field phenomena. Yeah. And can, we were talking about negative matter earlier, and, and negative energy is kind of the slightly more real version because um, we have something called the Casimir effect. Um, all coins, well, if you ever looked at the mass of an atom and you say, well, that's made of three quarks, each of those protons or neutrons is made of three quarks, and you look at the mass of those things, you look at the mass of those quarks, you're like, wait, that's off. I've got a two, you know, two MeV and two MeV and, and four MeV, and those add up to a thousand. How does that happen? Because most of the mass and energy there is being made up of what we call, you know, C quarks as opposed to valence quarks. And the idea between quantum is you got stuff that's constantly popping in and out of existence, always mm-hmm. constantly popping in and out of existence. And this is a, about as true and proven as we could reasonably get with that. So we kind of accept that as a pretty solid one. But when I have things constantly popping in and out of existence, much like when I have photons going through a location, there's always light photons going through you, they're migrant. On a freeway, nobody lives on a freeway, but there's always traffic there, right? So there's a population density on a freeway. Kind of the same thing with this quantum vacuum is that you always have things popping in existence. As a result, there's always a constant state of energy there, mm-hmm. even when you take everything else in the area. But if I put two things really close together, because everything has a wavelength, every every particle, everything has a wavelength associated to it. If I got two gigantically flat plates near each other, anything that's got a wavelength bigger than those plates all away from each other cannot form or exist. They just they can't be there because their wavelength is too big. As a result, because they're not forming in there anymore, but they're still forming on the other side of it, you get a pressure on the outside of the plates pushing them together, right? Mm. And, that, and that's that's the negative energy concept there. Um, so it's negative compared to the background state of the universe, but it's kind of like saying this is the ground floor that we all live on, and therefore we have negative height by saying there's a basement. But <laughs> the basement's not really mm. negative height, right. it's just below the level we were at. If you go and start right. things at the basement level, then everyone on the ground floor is on the fourth floor. That's now, negative energy. Now, if I remember correctly, and I think you've talked about this in one of your videos, that there is, if like that, that messing with that, I mean, that's if you there's a theory that if you were to get that too low, you could hit a point where basically it would just unravel the entire universe. <laughs> the entire- <laughs> but the theory holds that it happens at light speed. So if we did it in the Andromeda galaxy, it would still take two million years to get to us. Uh, so it is possible cool. that yeah, yeah there's waves of destruction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll deal with it later. That's fine. It's like climate change, you know, some uh, Elon Musk will fix it somehow. <laughs> Someone down the line will figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the good news on something like that is we said most of the universe is moving away from us faster than the speed of light. So if someone in the galaxy 10 billion light years away did this, um, the, that collapse wave would never actually reach us. So we'll send our zero point energy that way. There you go. Yeah. We'll, make yeah. a, we'll make a wormhole that goes to that place and then we can have our zero point energy there and then we can send the thing through and then close the wormhole when the zero, the vacuum, what's it called? The vacuum decay thing happens? Vacuum, yeah, yes, but there you go. of course, this is one of the ways you potentially make wormholes is with the Casimir effect and that negative energy. Because what you're basically trying to do there is, is the, the compressive force of a black hole is supposed to rip a hole in reality. What you are saying that with is the negative energy or negative mass that you put a, a throat through, right? Uh, you're basically you're showing up a tunnel that way, and that's what you're supposed to pass through. So, and, and again, on, on paper, this does actually still work because whatever the actual ground state of the universe is, whether that's zero or not, if you can have a state that's below that, even if that's the true zero, the universe is still up here. So, in theory, you could go beneath it, mm-hmm. and that's that's where that one potentially comes in as slightly more realistic as opposed to negative matter, is that you should be able to potentially go underneath that that you know that false vacuum layer. Mm-hmm. Now, to know that even better, you would actually have to go talk to one of the people who's an expert on that, which actually would be Michio Keku or Sean Keku. So. Yeah. I will mention to people out <laughs> there, this might be the stake at the moment. <laughs> they know their stuff very well. I mentioned to the internet people that this is like, like I'm talking about stuff that like, like this, uh, this thing that they were able to do this to uh, mitigate. They're trying to use the Casimir effect to mitigate errors in quantum computing. This is like, this is like stuff that got published like, like a month ago. So keep in mind, it's still really wonky. Stuff's happening. Yeah, I, should have, I haven't read yet, so I can only talk to it to some much of a degree, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, the other one is that uh, there was a big advance in the field of quantum communication by successfully teleporting something called a Q-trit, which is a quantum ooh. trit. Um, what a trit is, don't know. But apparently it's a unit of quantum information that's realized by a three-level quantum system that may be in superposition of three mutually 
orthogonal quanta. So is this like three-way position? Is this a, is this a, is this the positioning of a three-way? Help us. <laughs> is this three-way position? Help well, us. You can, you can have computers that are built on, on trinary, right? And usually they, instead of having your on off, you would have one, zero, and negative one as your, as your states. And the, presumably I'm just going to, because again, I, I've not read upon that. I would guess the Q trits, the equivalent of a qubit in that kind of context, that would be a one, zero, and negative one. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we actually have this sense. with, with uh, quantum flavors. Is uh, we have red, green, and blue as as the like colors for uh, quantum, and quarks come in flavors, which are a little bit weird. They're up, down, top, bottom, and Charmin straight. This is a lot of sex terms. Yeah. Yeah. Quantum three way <laughs> yeah. is there's a top you know, and a bottom, and, you know, uh, and a switch in the middle. And... Things, but <laughs> we literally named it the strange one because it was you know strange. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of another thing that's apparently going to destroy the universe. Um, Strange lunch, yes, yeah. Strange. Um, yeah, I love. I, uh, um, so, so that. So, uh, hopefully, we came to a satisfying and knowledgeable conclusion about where we are when it comes to quantum teleportation. We I can't have, imagine we have. Uh, can I just say we are in? We're over an hour into this podcast, and we've only talked about teleportation. We were going to talk about wormholes as well. I feel like with, seeing has as how much you've written so far, Tristan, that would take us like a full other hour. I'm. I'm good to just call it call it here and just make this one about teleportation if that's if that's cool with you. Would you want to do a part two next week? That would be fun. So I think next week we're gonna get to wormholes, which I'm very excited about. Um, well, like the wormholes in like a space time sense, I guess. Now I don't like like you know when you take a bite, you when you bite into an apple and you find a wormhole. That's no good. No <laughs> one likes that. We're not talking about no that, one likes biting into a universal apple and finding half a wormhole. Exactly. <laughs> um. So, uh, and we'll pick it back up with Isaac then. Isaac, thank you so much for for joining us for for another very um i was gonna say complicated episode but you you have a really good way of explaining things in a really simple uh sort of elegant way for people like me who don't really know anything i feel like my brain has grown three sizes uh since the start of this episode so thank you so much for for being here oh, really <laughs> glad to be back on yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but for, for at the moment, this both is and isn't, and semi is and semi isn't. It's probably not aliens, and you can find, not find, or semi find our uh, our Twitter, depending upon what Elon does with Twitter in the next week. Who knows? At, at probs not aliens on Twitter. So basically, it's Schrodinger's Twitter. Uh, in one universe, Elon has killed Twitter. In another u- universe, Elon hasn't killed Twitter, and we'll see where it is next we week. We just don't know. Um, and, uh, yeah, Isaac, where can people find you online if they want to search out more of your stuff? Like you can find me at IsaacArthur.net or online at YouTube or on, um, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Uh, just search for Science of Futurism with Isaac Arthur. We have a new episode every Thursday morning. Absolutely. Good stuff. Tristan, how about you? You have stuff uh, that you I, work on. Yeah, I have a YouTube channel called Step Back where I talk about why the past is important for understanding the issues of today. And right after this podcast, I'm going to go and talk for probably another two hours about cultural Marxism. And hopefully by the time this episode drops, that'll be out. So <laughs> Fantastic. Sounds I'm like a very a great light day. topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Scott. Yes. If I wanted to learn about why you're not happy about <laughs> the state of your content right now. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, where would I go? I mean, I have a YouTube channel called NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. My latest video is literally just called I Don't Think I'm Happy. And it's just like an update about my creative process. But I'm getting there. I'm, I'm doing some good stuff. Hopefully, I'm just going to start pumping out episodes. And I was very inspired by this podcast, being able to make something every week with you and, and, just, and just have it be fun. I want to do that for mm-hmm. my YouTube channel. Uh, yep. Go check that out. You can also find more of this podcast over at uh, nebula.tv slash probably not aliens. By the way, if you're not listening there, the second episode about wormholes is already up. Yeah. If you think about it, signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probably not aliens is like, it actually is super luminal travel because you are traveling a week into the future. That's right. And getting next week's episode now. That's what we were trying to say in a very roundabout, confusing way. Um, Thank you to everyone (laughs) who wrote reviews of this show on Apple Podcasts and for everyone who's told their friends about it and a very simple link you can uh, send people to is uh, probsnotaliens.com that's where you do it until next time my name is Scott Nicewander I'm Tristan Johnson and the truth is out there or it isn't out there in a certain probability wave function and you have to collapse it to find out
And I, I did it. I over Heisenberg, I think, the outro there. We will find out if the truth is out there as soon as we open up one of those envelopes. And then we'll know. Yep. We'll know what happened. Excellent. Oh. No one's going to find that annoying at all. <laughs> <laughs>